During the time when God sent judges to help Israel, there was a woman named Hannah. Hannah really wanted to have children, but was unable to. One day, she was so sad about this that she burst out crying and praying to God to give her a son. One of the priests of Israel named Eli was nearby and heard her and assumed she was drunk. How long are you going to stay drunk, he said to her. Put down your wine. Hannah explained that she was not drunk, but weeping and praying for God to give her a son. When he heard this, he prayed that she would indeed have a son. Soon after, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel. When he was a young boy, she brought him back to Eli, the priest, and the two of them prayed that God would use Samuel. One night, when Samuel was a little older, God spoke to him in his room, telling him about things that would happen in Israel in the future, called prophecies. This was the beginning of a special relationship between God and Samuel. God would use Samuel to speak to the Israelites over and over as a prophet. But the Israelites weren't satisfied with the prophet. They wanted a king, a military ruler, like the other nations around them had. Despite Samuel's warning against it, they demanded God give them a king. Eventually, God told Samuel who to make king. A man named Saul, who was easily a foot taller than any other man, someone the Israelites would trust to lead them. Samuel brought Saul in front of all of Israel. When the Israelites saw him, they shouted, Long live the king! Hearing that Israel had a new king, the Philistines gathered a huge army so large that some of the Israelites ran away in fear. But Samuel gave instructions to Saul that would lead to their victory. He told Saul to wait in a region called Gilgal until he could meet him there. Then they would give a sacrifice to God before the battle with the Philistines. But Saul grew impatient, and before Samuel got there, he offered the sacrifice himself. Saul's actions had terrible consequences. He continued to choose to go against what God commanded, and instead build up his own wealth and power, leading to the end of his rule in Israel. It was time for another king. Good morning. Guys got skills, huh? Well, you grab a Bible and open it to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're in the middle of a series where we're learning to understand the Bible. Not just a bunch of little individual stories in the Bible, but the overarching story that the Bible tells about who God is, how he created us, who we are, how he created this world, and how God still relates to us to this day. And so in, uh, let's see, October, we started in Genesis, right? And we've been going right along, and now we are to First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 14. Well, you're finding that. I'm going to give you a little bit of background, okay? In the beginning of the Bible, the earth exists. It's dark, chaotic, void of life. And God speaks. And as his word goes out into the dark chaos, it forms what? Life. What else? Order. Order. 
Light, land, water, and everything that is good, right? Everything that's good. And this is a theme throughout the whole Bible, that whenever God's word goes out, it transforms chaos and darkness into order, light, and everything, life, everything good. But we as humans, we often go like this to God's word. And as we ignore God's word, we invite that chaos and darkness back into our life and back into the world. And so as we've been going through the Bible, we have seen the first seven books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. That's where we are. And in these, in these books, we see this cycle over and over again. Where humans don't think we need God and we start to sin. And then we hit a stage of unblessing where we have cut ourselves off from every good gift that God wants to give us. Scripture says every good and perfect gift comes from God. Not just some of them, but every one of them. He's a source of life. He's a source of love. He's a source of everything good. And so when we do this, we fall into unblessing that leads to oppression. We always become slaves to whatever we idolize the most. And then when the pain gets too hard, what happens? We cry out to God, right? He has mercy and sends a deliverer. And then the good life is restored. But as we get comfortable, we begin to think, oh, we've earned all these blessings ourselves. And we start to ignore God again. And the cycle repeats. And so in the book of Judges, this is really emphasized. We see Israel go through this cycle 12 times. And so in Judges, I'm sorry, i got to take a drink here. In Judges, which we covered last week, we have 400 years of history that proves God's people are complete failures at governing themselves. That's what proves. In fact, if you go at the very beginning of the Bible and you read, starting with Adam and Eve, and you read all the way through to the end of Judges, the one conclusion, the one inevitable conclusion that you reach is that humans are complete failures at governing ourselves. That's what we've learned so far. And so the book of Judges ends with this statement. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, or did what they saw fit, whatever they wanted. And it was chaos, and people hurting each other. And so the point that the Bible brings us to, by the end of Judges, is the realization that we don't need just another deliverer. Israel had lots of deliverers. They had lots of heroes who came and rescued them out of their messes. We don't need just another deliverer. We need a king. Israel had no king. They need, we need a king who can rule and turn our hearts to what is good and right and the healthy way to live. So we don't keep getting back into this cycle again. So, the end of Judges, there's this big looming question. Well, who's the king? You know, like, who is the king that's going to do this? What kind of leader do we need? That's um, the question that's looming, and that's where First Samuel picks up. 
First Samuel is all about leadership. It's about what makes for a good leader, how we find them, what causes leaders to have lasting impact for good, what causes good leaders to become ineffective leaders, and even sometimes abusive leaders. That's all what First Samuel is about. And we need to know these principles because we're all leaders and we all choose our leaders. I mean, at the very minimum, you are the leader of your life. And so if you want to lead yourself well or your family or coworkers or in the community, we need to know these leadership principles from First and Second Samuel. So what's fascinating to me is there's this big looming question hanging at the end of Judges. Well, who's the king? How do we find this good leader? You would think we would get a story um, about a family with a history of producing good leaders. You know, like, this is how you raise them up. This is how you develop them. You know, like a fam- story about, like, I don't know, the House of Windsor or the Kennedys or Bushes. Like, this is, this is what it looks like. You know, big, successful families. The Bible does the exact opposite. The exact opposite. We get two stories of the most humble and unassuming people ever. We get a story about an impoverished immigrant widow named Ruth. And how out of just her care for others, she saves her family. She's got no great skills at all. And then the next story we get is at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and it's about a humble, barren woman who is completely powerless to achieve the one thing in life she wants the most. Every day, her husband's other wife, that's a whole other issue, but her husband's other wife, who has had lots of children, teases her and ridicules her. And so Hannah cries out to the Lord in her anguish. God blesses her with this son. And in chapter 2, she has this prayer of thanksgiving, which is actually prophetic for everything that comes in the rest of 1 Samuel. I just want to share a couple verses with you. This is what Hannah says. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. It is he who humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. And where does he put them? He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. We tend to look for the rich and the powerful to be our leaders, right? But this is saying God takes the lowly people and that's who he exalts to be leaders. From the... Foundation of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. That sentence right there flies in the face of everything we believe about politics and governing and leadership. It is not by strength that one prevails. And it, and in, we always think that the strongest is just going to be the one who is going to be the best ruler and prevails. And in 1 Samuel, we do see strong people prevail 
in the short term. But it's those who are humble before God and who continue to obey God that he exalts and they have a lasting impact for good. So, now, if we really understand Hannah's prophetic song here, we don't need to read the rest of 1 Samuel because it's really predictable. But um, Judges says that we don't learn our lessons well, so we're going to keep reading anyways. Okay. All right. All right. So right after this, the first leader that comes to power is Hannah's son, Samuel, who the book is named after. And he grows up in the house of the Lord. He learns to recognize the voice of God from a young age. And he follows God all of his life. And he actually leads Israel to a national revival. This happens in chapter 7. He leads the Israelites to get rid of all their idols. They come together and they have a time of fasting and prayer, confessing their sins, worshiping God again. And then this leads to their victory over their enemies. And they have peace throughout Samuel's lifetime. He's a great leader. But then as he's getting old, there's this question of succession. He's a a judge, and the Israelites don't want to keep being ruled by judges. And so they come to him and ask him for a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 says, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you, It is not you they have rejected, but who? God, it is me, God, that they have rejected as their king. This is the answer to that big looming question. You know, like, who's the king? Who's the leader we need? Oh, it's it's God, okay. You could have saw that one coming. Um, God is the king. But instead of choosing God and listening and obeying to his word, we want to rule ourselves. And when that fails, then we want to choose a leader, a human to rule over us. And the irony of 1 Samuel that we see repeated throughout human history is that people elect dictators all the freaking time. They will choose a human leader to be an authoritarian dictator over them. And it, sometimes it's called a king, sometimes it goes by a different title, but it's the same thing. And so God tells them, he said. This is God speaking to Samuel still. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Because it always starts with giving them some rights, but they keep claiming more, right? And so Samuel warns them, and he says, look, this is what the king's going to do. He's going to take your sons and daughters to be his servants, and they're going to have to do all this work, and he's going to take a tenth of everything you have as taxes, and he warns them about how a king's going to abuse them. And then Samuel says this, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused 
to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. That's what it comes down to. When we feel too weak to have victory and success on our own, we want another human to go out and fight for us. To go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. When we do not heed God's warnings, he will give us what we ask for. When we don't heed his warnings, he will give us what we ask for. Then Samuel said to everybody, go back to your own town. And so God tells Samuel to go and anoint a guy named Saul to be king. And Saul at first is terrified. He does not want this job of going out and fighting other people's battles. But God fills him with his Holy Spirit. He fills Saul with his Holy Spirit. And it gives Saul courage to come to the rescue of the city of Jabesh. Now, Jabesh has been surrounded by an Ammonite king. They're under siege. They have surrendered. And the Ammonite king, Nahash, he says, Okay, I'll take your peace treaty, but I'm going to gouge out all your right eyes. Not the terms of peace that they were hoping for. So they send for help. And filled with the spirit of God, Saul comes to their rescue, defeats the Ammonite army. Now everybody loves Saul. They weren't sure about him before, but they love him now. And they're like, yes, we want Saul to be our king. And Saul, like, the victory feels good and the praise feels good. And he's liking that everybody loves him. And so they go and they have this huge coronation celebration that Samuel bombs. And at this huge coronation celebration, Samuel comes and he confronts the people with how they've rejected God as their king. And he gives a big speech, but a few verses that summarize it. He says, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and your king who reigns over you follow the Lord, your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was your ancestors. That's the warning. Immediately after his coronation, Saul picks a fight with the Philistines. He doesn't ask God first if he should do this. He just assumes You know, well, I'm God's appointed leader. There are enemies. I'm going to go attack them. When we look at the examples of Moses and Joshua and other leaders, they would always ask, God, should we go attack? Who should be sent? How should we do it? Saul does none of that. He just attacks, and he gets in a battle that he is totally unprepared for. And immature Christian leaders do this all the time. I've done this many times. We see a problem. We see someone in need, someone who needs rescuing. And what do we do? Attack! You know, like, someone's in need, I have to help! And we just go running full bore into that situation without asking if it's God's will, without asking God how he wants to win this battle, because we know he cares about the people in need. Right? But we don't ask him how he wants to meet that need. 
or if it's the right time for us, or if he has some other assignment for us and he's sending, we don't ask. We just see a need and run. And Saul sees a need. Philistines oppression Israelites attack. And he just, he just runs right into battle. He gets in totally over his head. The Philistines respond. Their army marches out with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and more soldiers than the sands of the shore, it says. Saul has 600 men with no weapons. No weapons. Only he and his son Jonathan have weapons. And his army is freaking out. So now he wants some advice, and he's supposed to wait for Samuel. Right? Okay. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. And just as he finished making them, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, Well, when I saw that the men were scattering, and you did not come at the set time, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, which they were only assembling because he had attacked them, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to build, to offer a burnt offering. And, And this does not If you can stay back on the last slide for a minute. This does not sound so bad, right? He's offering God a burnt offering to seek the Lord's favor. But that's the catch. He's seeking the Lord's favor, not the Lord's instructions. He has run out ahead of God, gotten in over his head, and now he is asking God to bless his plan. He is not seeking instruction. He's seeking God's blessing on his plan. And that's huge. Christians commit the sin all the time. Without asking God, we convince ourselves that we're doing God's work. And then we ask him to bless our plans when we're in our overheads. You guys, God doesn't take orders from us. And he doesn't take bribes from us either. Even the bribes in the form of religious sacrifice. Oh, well, God, if you help me, I will do this for you, you know. And God certainly isn't deceived when we run ahead of him, claiming to be doing his work. God knows that we run ahead of him because we like to be the hero. When we follow God, we get a taste of what it's like to be used by God to achieve good. And it feels good. And we get addicted to victory and being heroes. And instead of seeking God, we seek victory. Instead of seeking God, we seek victory. We run ahead of God and we get in over our head and then we ask God to bless our plans. And Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. 
but you now, but now your kingdom will not endure. I think we have that verse too. Well, now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. A sure way to tell if you are running out ahead of God, is there some command of God that you are skipping? For, for Saul, he wasn't listening to what God had said about how long to wait or about how to offer a pro- proper sacrifice. For us, it can be different commands of God at different times. Usually the first one is the Sabbath rest. And we just justify, oh, well, I'm, I can't rest because I'm doing the Lord's work. That is not an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. You cannot do the Lord's work while you're disobeying one of the Ten Commandments. He won't accept that. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's other things. We brush aside responsibilities he's called us to. Responsibilities to our family. Or maybe he's given us a calling and we can feel like, oh, God is calling me to do this. But this this is what it boils down to, guys. It feels better to be the hero over here, to be this person's hero, than to remain faithful in what God has called us to do over here. It feels better to be the hero for someone over here than to remain faithful in what God has called us to do over here. And this is the start of a pattern where Saul tries to do the work of the Lord only half obeying the Lord's commands. And because of it, God rejects him as a leader. You got to think about this from God's perspective. When we as leaders, we run out ahead of God trying to do some good, right? In the name of the Lord. And then we get in over our head. And we're asking God to rescue us and help us and bless our plans. God has only like two options in that in that case, right? Like he can let us fall flat on our face. And then we'll blame him. God, why didn't you help me? I'm trying to do good. You know? Or he can be merciful. And he can bless our plan because he cares about the need and, you know, and all that. But the problem then is we don't learn. We don't learn. And we just keep starting these unsustainable battles. And when we continue to start unsustainable battles, it leads to sin and abuse. Saul's story continues. We're now to chapter 14, all right? We have summarized our way to chapter 14. I'm going to summarize the first half and then we'll read starting in verse 36, okay? Okay, so Samuel leaves. Saul's still there. His army's still freaking out. Jonathan, his son, asks God for a sign what to do. And God gives Jonathan a sign to attack. So he takes his buddy. They have at best, I think they only have one sword between them, if I'm reading the story right. And this has got to be one of the most macho scenes in all of scripture. Um, They go, just Jonathan and his buddy, they attack the Philistines climbing up a cliff. 
And Jonathan is climbing this cliff with his bare hands, yanking on Philistine soldiers. And as they fall, his buddy, who is climbing behind him, stabs him with a sword and kills him. Like, it scene totally belongs in, like, a Schwarzenegger movie or something like that. It's incredible. They kill, like, 20 soldiers this way. God sends a panic, and then the rest of the Philistines just start killing each other. They turn on each other. And Saul, he hears this commotion. Like, what's going on over there? So he calls the priest. He's like, inquire of God. Tell me what's going on over there. And, which is good, right? The commotion gets louder, and he's like, never mind, attack! And he totally runs into the battle again, without inquiring of God. He gets there, half the Philistines have killed each other, the other half are fleeing. And this is what the word of God says. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. They're saved. You see that, they are saved at this point in time. There's no threat. On that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved beyond Beth-Havan. That's beyond Israel's border. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of his troops taste food. He's saying, we're going to keep chasing them. And none of you can eat until they're all dead. Guys, this is spiritual abuse. This is what leadership abuse and especially spiritual abuse looks like. Asking people to do things in the name of the Lord that God is not asking them to do. He's not, Saul isn't satisfied with the victory God has given him. So he begins abusing his followers in the name of the Lord. And so they chase after the Philistines. And the one who can't keep up without eating something is Jonathan. So, verse 31. That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and having taken sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Now, in Leviticus, God had told his people they weren't supposed to eat meat with blood. Like I said, Leviticus is a family rules. A lot of them are about hygiene and health and stuff like that. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating blood in it. Under the pretense of doing God's work, Saul has led his followers to exhaustion and they begin sinning because over-exhaustion will lead you to sinning all the time. We will abuse our bodies. We will get grumpy and with each other, you know, and offend and not forgive one another. We will start seeking um, escape and things that are not good. And holy, exhaustion leads to sin. And that's why rest is one of the Ten Commandments. And it happens in churches, in Christian families, in Christian workplaces all the time. So now we're at verse 36. Saul, he stops the men from sinning. He's like, no, we're going to cook the food. 
Don't eat it raw, right? Verse 36, if you find it, um, it's about halfway through. After it says, Jonathan eats honey, about halfway through to the next heading, you'll see verse 36. Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. And let us not leave one of them alive. This guy is totally addicted to victory. A sure sign of a leader who's addicted to victory is they are afraid of losing momentum. They are afraid of losing momentum. And they're like, we've got this momentum. We've got to keep it up. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. It is just like, these guys are dead. But they're looking, well, you're our victorious leader, so you must know what's right. You know, and there's all this unhealth and exhaustion going on. Do whatever you s- seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. Like the priest is calling a time out, right? Let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. God has had enough. He's not even answering. Guys, if you look to God's word and it does not answer the question you're asking, it's because you're asking the wrong question. I have found that to be true over and over again in my life. If there is something that I want to know and I'm looking to God's word to answer it and there's no answer, it's because I'm asking the wrong question. Saul therefore said, Come here, all of you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescued Israel lives. Do you see how he's lacing all of this with religious holy language? As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. And Saul then said to Israel, all right, well, you stand over there and I and my son Jonathan will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. You see, here's people and they know their leader is going off the rails, but they are too scared to challenge him and speak truth to him. And that is a dangerous place to be in as a leader whether you're just leading your kids or your coworkers or whatever, it's a dangerous place to be in when the people following you are too afraid to speak truth to you. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or in my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the fault isn't with the men of Israel... Respond with Thummim. Now, Urim and Thummim, they were tools that God had given the priest to discern his will. All right. So Jonathan and Saul were, cle- were taken by Lot, and the men were cleared. So Saul said, well, cast a lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. So 
his son Jonathan said, I tasted a little honey on the end of my staff, and now I must die. And Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then, finally, then, Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. You see, they they weren't in their own land. They were in Philistine land. They withdrew back to their own land. This sounds crazy to us, that there can be a leader who is appointed by God, who would abuse his people and even sacrifice his own children in the name of the Lord. But it happens all the time. Christian leaders... Leaders who are in the workplace, um, or maybe they're leaders in the community. Pastors, definitely. They try to achieve good in the world. They get addicted to that victorious feeling and being a hero, being a rescuer. And so they run ahead of God, not asking what God's will is. And when God... They ask God to bless their plans, and they just keep starting these unsustainable battles. And the first people who are usually sacrificed are their kids. It is harmful to their kids. It is harmful to their marriages. It's harmful to their physical health. We see Saul's mental health just tank after this point, if it wasn't already. It's harmful to the people following them. Everybody's getting burnt out in the name of the Lord. And pastors are some of the worst offenders. Some of you have experienced this. So many pastors ignore God's Sabbath command to rest in the name of doing God's work. And you can hold me accountable. Sunday's a work day for me, but I Sabbath on either Saturday or Mondays. You can hold me accountable to that. You can hold me accountable for leading this church out of a pace where people are not getting burnt out. But I want to hold you accountable too. God does not want you to sacrifice your family, your health, in the name of doing his good work. He is a good God. He is good. He wants to give you victory, but he wants to give you victory in a way that is good for you. And for your family, for your health. He wants to give you victory in a way that is life-giving for the people who follow you. He wants to give you victory in a miraculous way where he gets the glory and you have to keep depending on him because miracles require dependence on God. There's no other way to get a miracle. He wants to give you victory in a way where you remain humble and dependent on him so you deepen your love relationship with him instead of getting addicted to being other people's heroes. Because that will become destructive in your life. So you have to ask yourself, 
Whenever you're thinking about taking a new endeavor, there's some questions you need to ask yourself. Are there any commands of God I'm setting aside to do this? Like count the cost. If I start this, where is it going to lead me? How, how big is the momentum going to be? Can I keep up? Can I still do all the other things that God has called me to do? Or does doing this require setting aside some of these that I don't, things that God has asked me to do that don't feel as good as being the hero over here? You have to count the cost. Are you seeking God's will or are you just asking him to bless your plans? You guys, God God is giving this church victory and momentum. It's wonderful to see. And I'm so thankful. But I'm also very mindful that we need to keep in step with God and keep asking his plans because there is never any end to the needs that need to be met. There's no end. And so several of you I've had conversations with about counting the costs and how it's going to affect. And maybe that's not the right time for that. We just, momentum can become a a monster. (laughs) We just don't need to keep feeding it. The good news is if, if, if you have disobeyed God and you've run ahead of him in his, your life, All it takes is being humble and confessing that to God. And then he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us and exalt us. He exalts the humble. So even if you're looking back and you're like, oh my gosh, I've made a mess of things. It's okay. You can ask God to forgive you. Just don't remain proud and addicted. Because that's going to lead to your downfall. Staying humble before God to follow all of his commands and everything that he does call us to, even the things that aren't fun, that is the way to true victory. Now pray with me. Lord, I pray... We build our lives on your word, on your word, not on our own desires, even our good desires, even our desires to help other people. God, I pray that we will stay humble before you. So that we will know how good you are how powerful you are, how you give us rest and victory, how you can fight battles and win them even when we're not fighting in them. You do it all the time, Lord. God, we pray that you will give us neon blinking lights that will show us what things you're calling us to and what things you are not calling us to. And God, we pray we'll not run ahead of you Because you are our shield. You are our firm foundation. You are the secret to our success and our happiness and our well-being. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so, God, we pray that we will be satisfied with the good gifts you have given us, the good things you've called us to, and not seek things that you have not called us to yet. 
Help us remember that you are the king and the deliverer, and we are not. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.